from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hi there, and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. My name's Rosie Georgie. You haven't heard me on here before. That's because I work on the press, communications and admin side of things at the CER. But every six weeks from now, I will be hosting the new podcast format that you're already listening to called Ask CER. At the CER, we don't believe that European policy should be overly complicated or challenging to engage with. But the fact of the matter is that we live in an interconnected world where one seemingly separate policy area or incident spills over into another sphere and it can be difficult to connect the dots. For example, the US's withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan that we've seen this summer will have an impact on next year's French presidential election. Equally, the European post-pandemic recovery fund will shape how Europe fights climate change and transitions to a more digitalized world in the years to come. With this in mind, we wanted to both make our podcast a bit more interactive and to give you, our listeners, the chance to ask whatever you wanted to know or have cleared up about Britain, the EU and the world, no matter how specific the question. We're going to air each of these episodes every six weeks, but there will be two of our usual podcast formats going out in between then. If you haven't listened before, welcome. And just to say what we normally do and what you can expect is a mixture of external guests and researchers taking a deep dive into one particular subject area. So without further ado, let's look at the questions that you've already written in with. Thank you to everyone who has. We have grouped them together into three categories. We're going to start with quite a wide lens and gradually zoom in the focus. Looking firstly at the EU's identity, European integration and defence, followed by Europe's challenge of upholding the rule of law, and finally UK financial services regulation now that Brexit has happened. And with me today to answer these questions are the CER's director, Charles Grant, senior research fellow, Camina Mortera-Martinez, and research fellow, Zach Mayers. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Hello. Hi, Rosie. It's great to be here. Thank you, Rosie. Okay, brilliant. Let's kick off. So we will start by looking at EU integration and defence. Now, generally speaking, France and Germany have been the two EU member states who have pushed for deeper integration. That's to say more cooperative European decision making, shared laws and shared legal and political systems. But historically, other countries within the EU, typically central and eastern ones, have seen this as an attempt to curb their national sovereignty and influence. On this subject, Wilco from Bremen in Germany has written in asking, do you think more integration is desirable 
And if so, does the EU first need a stronger common identity to make Europeans feel more connected to each other? And if so, is a multi-speed EU necessary to develop these goals, such as on defence? Charles, first, could you tell me what Wilco means by a multi-speed Europe? And do you think this is the way forward for the EU to meet its objectives? Well, I think multi-speed Europe, there's a lot of, there are a lot of different parts to that question, Rosie, but multi-speed Europe is, is already, already we have a multi-speed Europe. We have different countries in the EU doing different things, not all together. We have not everybody in the Eurozone. We have not everybody in the Schengen area. We have not everybody taking part in defence cooperation, not everybody taking part in the European public prosecutor. And there are a few other areas too. As far as I'm concerned, this is probably a good thing because if the EU gets larger and larger, and it will, I hope, one day include the Balkan countries, the idea that everybody has to be forced to do the same things really is is, is not a good idea. It'd make the EU a more brittle and less flexible organisation. I mean, I don't really see why Poland should be forced to join the euro if it doesn't want to join the euro, for example. So I'm I'm all for flexibility. And of course, there are, you can't you can't go too far. You have to have everybody in the single market in the area of uh, free movement of people, I guess. Everybody has to take part in the common trade policy, common foreign policy. You, you, there are certain areas where if you allowed multi-speedism, for want of a better word, then the EU would not work very well. But I think in areas that you you can have smaller groups cooperating together um, without upsetting the apple cart as a whole, why, why not? President Macron's been very keen on this. He's often suggested we need more multi-speed Europe than we have at the moment. I think he's probably right about that. And of course, there is the British angle too. Um, in the very long run, though Britain's not going to join the EU as a full member in my lifetime, I fear, sadly. Maybe certain aspects of it, certain policies, it could, it could join in a, in a more multi-speed arrangement. For example, it's quite possible to imagine that future defence arrangements might be structured so that the British could plug into them, given that Britain can contribute a lot to European defence. I think multi-speedism is desirable. There isn't really a good word in the English language to describe it. Multispeedism is ugly, variable geometry is complicated, differentiated integration is even worse. So I, perhaps listeners to this podcast can write in and suggest what we should talk about, what, what phrase we should use to describe variable geometry. I don't, however, think that multispeedism necessarily helps to create a better sense of European identity. So let me come on to the other two parts of the question. I do believe that more integration is desirable. Defence is certainly an area where I think Europe needs to get its act together and do more together. I think it needs more common rules on for dealing with migration and asylum issues, common way of treating asylum seekers and common system for dealing with them. I think for the Eurozone, we need some sort of permanent system for a transfer union, something modelled on the, the recovery fund, but on a more permanent basis so that future crises in the Eurozone are nipped in the bud before they get too serious. But if you're going to have elements of a transfer union between the richer and the poorer countries, then you need to have stricter rules to ensure that the poorer countries don't don't abuse the largesse they receive from the richer countries. Uh, I think for the rule of law issues, you need some stri stricter mechanism for making sure that countries in the EU don't abandon their democratic principles. And even in foreign policy, I think there is perhaps a case to be made for majority voting in certain limited areas of foreign policy. They're not on the most important issues, which is a matter of where national sovereignty still prevails. So I do think we need more integration. The trouble is, of course, public opinion in many European countries doesn't necessarily see the case for it. So the constant tension in the European Union is between the technocrats and some pro-European politicians saying, let's do more together here and there. And then voters and populist politicians on the other side saying, no, 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 let's not do that. 
let's let's preserve national sovereignty. Let's forget about integration and, and put put the national interests first. So that really is the the tension that will define the EU for, probably for the next century if the EU lasts another century. This tension between integration against popular resistance. So it, you can only integrate if you have eloquent, inspiring politicians who are able to make the case for further integration and, and uh, argue the case very well why it's necessary to have, for example, um, common rules on asylum seekers. And I think we don't, sadly, if you look around the, the governments of Europe at the moment, there don't seem to be so many eloquent leaders who can do that. Emmanuel Macron can on a good day, perhaps Mrs Merkel could on a good day, but there aren't so many leaders who can do that, who can make the case for integration. The final bit of that question is about identity. And of course, integration is it would be easier if there's a greater sense of common identity, then voters would understand the need for further integration. But that's not something you can legislate for. Either it comes or it doesn't come. And I think Europe needs to has enough challenges and problems in the world so that it needs to get its act together and integrate in certain respects, whatever the level of uh, common identity that voters feel. And they obviously feel it more in some parts of the EU than others. Um, now, you, so you can't legislate to make people think that they're part of a common enterprise. Certain things can happen that may, might make them feel so. Common experiences can help to create the, the feeling of commonality, common threats, common challenges common ways of living and, and interaction. I think the creation of the euro has probably helped a bit because many parts of the EU now do have the common currency. I think the COVID pandemic has probably helped to make people understand there are many ch challenges they're better off facing together. Similarly, the climate challenge, the fact that many Europeans have a similar view on climate that we need to do more to limit carbon emissions. Terrorist atrocities could obviously make us feel solidarity with each other. The challenge of migration, the challenge of external migration, and then, of course, freedom of movement uh, amongst the EU citizens and economic integration can help them to feel they have something in common. But it's not something, I say, you can turn on or off. There's no button you can press that makes people feel they have that sense of identity. And I think that, um, you know, Europe needs to get on and integrate in certain areas, whatever the sense of identity. But, of course, if you don't have enough sense of identity, then it will you're more likely to get populists breaking that integration. So whatever politicians can do to encourage that sense of identity, that's good, but they, they, if they can't do, do it well enough, or if it doesn't, doesn't come up soon enough, then there's a limit probably to how far you can head away with integration. But I don't particularly think multi-speed Europe helps to boost the sense of identity in particular. I, mean, I think it's a good idea because it means you don't force particular countries into particular policies that they might feel uncomfortable with, like Denmark does not want to join Europol. Well, that's fine. Let the Danes stay out of Europol. That may be create some problems for them in catching criminals, but that's that's their lookout. So I, I think I think maybe more multi-speed means is a help, helpful way to reconcile people with integration if you don't force everybody to, to move ahead with that integration. Thanks, Charles. We've recently seen that the prospects for creating an EU army have come back into the European debate again, now that American troops have left Afghanistan. Miguel from Madrid wrote in saying that the current geopolitical dynamic demands an improvement of the European security and defence policy, perhaps a European army. He asked, are the different actors involved really interested or is this a rhetorical debate? Well, I think an awful lot of it, Rosie, is rhetorical. Um, I mean, it is true that German politicians in particular and some others do say, let's create a European army. A European army means that you'd have soldiers employed by the EU 
working for an EU defence ministry, reporting to an EU minister who could be sent into war by an EU minister or, or the approval of the council of ministers or the commission or some multilateral institution, that's never going to happen. Which isn't to say that European defence doesn't matter. It does matter. The European defence has been going now for, in some respects, since the San Malo summit of 1998 between Tony Blair, the then British Prime Minister, and Jacques Chirac, the then French President, who said, let's have the EU playing a role in defence, which it had never really done before. And over the last 23 years, it has done some fairly useful things. There's been a lot of peacekeeping operations, been a lot of humanitarian relief operations, there have been rule of law operations. There's been naval operations against pirates off the coast of Somalia, for example, which have worked quite well. So the EU's achievements are not to be sniffed at. But it, you know, what it hasn't done is gone and fought a war and shot, shot, shot lots of people and killed lots of people. I don't think it's going to do that because NATO is there to do that if necessary. And maybe one day the EU can develop that. I'd be all in favour of developing it. But there are many constraints. But first of all, I just think that you know, European army, the rhetoric is not helpful. It scares people. It's certainly one of the factors in the British referendum campaign was the sceptics said, look, Europe's going to create an army that'll force us to send our troops into action against the world. That was never on the cards, but of course, rhetorically, it has been on the cards. And to be fair to Eurosceptics, if European politicians talk the talk, then Eurosceptics rely to say, well, you know, this is a real problem. Let's let's run away from it. But the truth is that there's a tradition in continental European politics, particularly in Germany, of what Germans call uh, Sunday speeches, grand, grandiloquent, fine-sounding speeches that make people feel good, that they don't really mean very much about it. And in my view, I think very few governments indeed, very few governments, certainly not the German government, are serious about creating a European army in the sense of a force that is run by the EU, employing EU soldiers to be sent into action by the EU. But that doesn't mean that European defence is irrelevant. As I've already said, it's achieved quite a lot. It could achieve more. I hope that it could move towards the higher end of warfare one day when NATO doesn't want to be involved. Why shouldn't the EU go and take on small or medium-sized conflicts on its own? So what does it need to do? Well, uh, you, first of all, it needs to build on what we've got already, which is, which is, although there isn't a European army, there are forces sent in wearing an EU badge, which are combined from different countries in the EU. So we've had in Bosnia and Kosovo, I, mean, I actually saw it when I was a journalist in Kosovo, the very good British, French and other soldiers working together in the peacekeeping force in Kosovo. You need more of that. But in particular, I'd say mention at least four things you need to get a more effective kind of European defence. One thing is you need to spend more money. It's not the only thing that matters at all, but um, so long as most EU countries don't meet the NATO target of 2%, it's hard to convince Americans, amongst others, that we are serious about defence. Germany spends nearer 1.5% than 2%. Italy and Spain spend nearer 1%. And very few countries really spend enough on defence so that we do essentially depend on the Americans. So when President Macron says, as he does very eloquently, we need the European strategic autonomy, we need Europe needs to be more capable of doing things on its own, and I'm all for Mr Macron's desire. One of the sine qua knowns for that is you need to actually spend more. The second thing is you need to organise your forces better when you, and spend the money more wisely. One thing that matters a lot is readiness, that is the ability to actually send soldiers into action if, if the government concern says go into action. At the moment, very few countries outside other than Britain, which is no longer in the EU, and France are able to deploy soldiers quickly. It takes months and months to crank up deployments. And if you need to have a rapid reaction force, which has been talked about recently by Mr Burrell, amongst others, then you need to be able to make sure that your armed forces are efficiently organised and managed so you can send them into action quickly. 
then then you need better equipment. Most European countries don't have the ability to move their soldiers around. They need to borrow transport planes from the British or the Americans or somebody else. And that's not the only area where capabilities are lacking. There are many areas where where European armed forces are inadequate. Mid-air refueling is another one. So uh, some of them don't even have enough ammunition, as we saw during the Libya conflict uh, a long time ago. So we, better, better equipment, which, which, is, which is obviously linked to the money spending. And the most important thing of all, the fourth requirement, I think, for more effective European defence is actually a, a better military culture. Britain and France have a military culture because of their imperial histories, which is they are prepared to send forces into harm's way and shoot people and take risks and take casualties. Very few other European countries have that culture. The, Euro the German culture which is very different. It's much more you know, use of armed forces to peacekeep and negotiate with, with people and avoid using force, which is a, given German history is a very understandable position, but it's not so useful if you're trying to build up your armed forces, build up your reputation in the world as, 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 a, as a military power that people should, be, should fear and, and, take, and res at least respect, if not fear. So you do need to, to try and extend the, the activist interventionist military culture of the French and the British to other parts of the European continent. And I think Mr Macron understands that, which is why he's created something called the European Intervention Initiative, which despite the name is not actually an operational organisation, it's not actually a club that sends forces into action to kill people, but it is a, a sort of club that's supposed to spread and change the way military cultures uh, operate and supposed to, 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 to change military cultures as some of the more reticent countries. It's, it's a bureaucratic process at the moment, but it may, I hope, produce more dividends. It's a, there's roughly a dozen countries in it, the more serious military countries are in it. But it's back to our discussion of variable geometry. I think if you're serious about Europe acting in the defence fair, you probably need to start off at least with not every member state being involved, because some of them are just not serious. Start with the more serious ones who have more capabilities and are more willing to use force and extend it to later to the other countries when they're ready, if they're ready to join. So I think Macron understands this. A smaller club of serious countries is probably the way forward for European military operations. There are, of course, always tensions, especially after the recent AUKUS business. Um, many Central European countries fear that the French are trying to build a club against NATO or against the Americans, and the Gaullist voices in France have certainly got louder recently since AUKUS was created, which has really humiliated the French and turned many French against the Americans, as well as the British and the Australians. But, but, uh, but nevertheless, I think even countries that are very Atlanticist, such as Poland, at least sometimes do see the point of a Europe, Europe itself developing greater capabilities in defence. So I'm all for greater European defence capabilities, but, but so to sum up, we need to spend more money, we need to, have to better organise our armed forces and improve readiness. Uh, we need better equipment and we need a, a, a more dynamic interventionist military culture. And then I think Europe can be seen no longer as a political pygmy and an economic giant. It needs to be seen as a political giant as well. One element of that is more integrated foreign policy, but another element of that should be the capability to use defence, at least for middle-sized military conflicts when NATO is not involved, when the Americans are not involved. Thanks very much, Charles, for that and to Wilco and Miguel for the great questions. We're now going to narrow the focus a bit and look at Poland and Hungary in the context of the rule of law. Now, this issue is not new. Over the last six years, the EU has had increasing concerns over the weakening of judicial independence and the freedom of the press and the curtailment of minority and migrant rights within these two member states. 
However, right now the European Commission is withholding approval for grants and loans to Warsaw and Budapest and is weighing up whether to use its financial muscle to address these issues. Camino, on this subject, Alan from Ingolstadt asked, considering the behaviour of these countries and their repressive policies, will the EU act with fines and sanctions or can we expect continued non-direct action or perhaps more focus following the German elections? Well, thanks, Rosie, and thank you, Alan, for your question. I, I actually often find this issue terribly difficult to untangle, and I feel there are a few misunderstandings on what is happening and to who are, are these things happening. So Alan's question is the perfect segue for me to go into what I hope is going to be a short explanation of where we are and what may happen next. First, as you rightly said, Rosie, there have been problems with democratic backsliding in Poland and Hungary for a while. Back when this whole thing started, there was not much the Commission or the European Union as such could really do. There was one main way of addressing the problem, but nobody really wanted to use it because it was, and it still is, a quite radical measure. The so-called nuclear option of the Article 7 of the Lisbon Treaty. This article allows the Commission, the Council of Ministers or the European Parliament to determine that there has been a serious breach of EU values, which include respect for the rule of law, and to suspend voting rights if a EU country is indeed found guilty of such a breach. Now, the Commission has initiated Article 7 proceedings against Poland in 2017, and the Parliament triggered the same proceedings against Hungary in 2018. Article 7 is a complex provision which has three phases. The first is determining that there is a risk of a serious breach. That's the easy part, really, because it does not require unanimity of all member states in the Council. Now, the second step is to declare that this breach has actually happened, and that is where both procedures against Poland and Hungary are stuck at the moment, because this step requires unanimous agreement of all member states in the Council. And, of course, Poland is blocking Hungary, and Hungary is blocking Poland. So we are likely not to reach the third step, which is the suspension of voting rights, anytime soon. So Article 7 procedures are going nowhere. The Commission knows this, and that is why it has explored a number of other options. I would divide these options into three categories. Indirect action, core proceedings, and actions related to EU money. Let me begin with the first. So the Commission has tried to monitor the status of the rule of law in all member states so it can spot deficiencies before they become a Poland-sized problem, right? And it does this with an annual report that looks at several indicators in all member states and also by setting up dialogues with EU capitals. This is what Alan called indirect action and so far it has had, I'm afraid, a limited effect. The second tool in the EU's arsenal is, of course, resorting to the courts. Now, you all know that the Commission can take European Union countries to courts for breaching EU law or for failing to implement EU rules. The Commission has done this with Poland in relation to three cases. The lowering of the age of retirement of judges, which is viewed as a trick to actually purge non-loyal judges. 
the setting up of a disciplinary chamber in the Supreme Court, which methods and legal basis are more than questionable, and the rulings of Poland's suspicious constitutional courts, where it says that Polish law has supremacy over European Union law and has hence authorizes lower courts to rule against EU law, which is, of course, illegal. In July this year, the European Court of Justice ruled that both the lowering of the judge's age and the disciplinary chamber were illegal and asked the Polish government, through an exceptional measure called injunction, to stop disciplinary proceedings ASAP. And the Polish government, of course, has to date not complied with that emergency injunction and that is why the Commission has asked the court to start imposing very high daily fines on Poland which Poland has said will not pay. The third instrument that the Commission has relates to the budgets. In December 2020, the Council of Ministers approved a law, the so-called conditionality mechanism, that allows the European Union to stop giving EU money to countries where there are significant breaches of EU values, again, including the rule of law. Now, of course, both Hungary and Poland opposed the law, but it was approved by qualified majority voting anyways. This happened more or less at the same time that member states had to unanimously agree on the European Union's landmark post-pandemic recovery funds. Because Poland and Hungary could not veto the conditionality mechanism, they threatened to veto the recovery fund instead. To solve the impasse, the German rotating presidency of the Council of Ministers crafted a compromise by which the conditionality law could only apply after the court had resolved any potential challenge to it. Lo and behold, Warsaw and Budapest launched legal proceedings against this law in March this year, and those are still pending. So the Commission has not been able to trigger the conditionality mechanism, although it is preparing to do so because it trusts the ECJ will declare it legal after all. A related action relates to the disbursement of EU cohesion and regional funds to Poland. To receive the money, EU governments have to prove that they comply with fundamental rights. This is not exactly the same as EU values, I know this is confusing, but fundamental rights are more about respecting minorities, freedom of assembly, all these kind of things. Now, of course, the European Union finds that Poland is breaching those by declaring that they are LGTBQI plus free zones and has stopped payment to the municipalities where such zones exist. Finally, and I'm sorry, I know this has been long, but I feel there is very little understanding of what's happening uh, in this whole rule of law conundrum. There is the recovery funds. Now, technically, the recovery fund is not designed to protect the rule of law in Europe, so payments cannot be stopped for that reason. However, the Commission has still not approved Hungary and Poland's national recovery plans, and without that approval, the money cannot start coming. Now, why has the Commission still not said yes to Hungary and Poland's plans to reactivate their economies after the pandemic? Well, for a very simple reason. The Commission is just not convinced that there will be people in place to monitor how that money is spent. This, in the case of Hungary, is because of accusations of corruption and cronyism which have reached the European Anti-Fraud Office. In the case of Poland, it's because a captured judiciary cannot exert any control 
on how the funds are spent. So both national plans are frozen for now, and of course they cannot be frozen forever, but until Poland and Hungary find a way to assuage the Commission concerns, the situation will remain as it is. And finally, about the German elections that Alan was asking about, there have been, of course, many decisions that have been delayed in the European Union in the run-up to the German elections, but nobody expects Germany really to have a government soon. So I think the risk is that we go from delaying decisions while we await the next German Chancellor to delaying them because of the French elections next year. The European Union is very good at kicking the can down the roads, but it cannot do that forever. So I think a lot would also depend on how or whether Warsaw and Budapest decide to escalate the matter. At some point, the European Union, elections or not, will need to act. And I'd say the next thing to look for is the ECJ's ruling on Poland's Constitutional Tribunal, how and when the recovery funds start flowing to both countries, and what the ECJ will say about the conditionality mechanism, which makes for a hot few months ahead, and I'm sure that we will come back to this question in the next episodes of Ask the CER. Thanks, Camino. That's great. And thank you for flagging what we've got to look out for in the forthcoming months. Now, Zach, let's turn to you. And getting more specific still, let's look at the nitty gritty of financial services and Brexit. Now, an ongoing challenge in this remit is that the UK wants to give its regulators more powers and freedom to diverge from EU regulation, but it would also like the EU to recognise its rules as equivalent to its own, right? On this, David from London asked, how do you see the UK diverging from EU regulation with respect to finance and payments moving forwards? The Financial Conduct Authority has been consulting on changes to payments regulation in the UK. Is that going to become more prevalent? Thanks, Rosie, and thanks a lot for the question, David. Um, I thought I'd just start by stepping back and explaining where the UK and the EU are now. So during the Brexit negotiations, the EU refused to negotiate, giving the UK access or guaranteed access to its um, financial services markets. And so, you know, that was a clear red line for the EU quite early on. And so the question has turned now to whether the EU would grant equivalence to the UK. And equivalence is essentially a unilateral decision by the, um, by the EU to recognise UK regulation as providing similar outcomes. And so if the European Union decided that UK financial services regulations were equivalent, then many financial services providers, but not all, could largely go on operating in the EU as, um, as they did before Brexit. However, I think it's worth noting that equivalence was never going to be a complete solution for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, it doesn't cover all financial services. So, for example, there's no equivalence regime for standard retail banking or for payment services or for reinsurance. So it was always going to be the case that UK businesses that wanted to provide those services in the EU, they were always going to have to set up a, um, a separate subsidiary and get licences in the EU. And secondly, equivalence is a unilateral decision by the EU. So even if the EU had granted equivalence, we'd simply be talking about whether the EU was going to be taking it away um, as the UK starts to diverge. So in a, in a sense, now that we know that the EU is not going to grant equivalence, it's really a, a, a lot more certain for the UK and they now have a freer hand to, to diverge if, if they wish to without having to worry about how that's going to affect market access in, in the EU. Uh, we also know that the EU is not averse to using 
equivalence decisions as a political tool rather than just a, a bureaucratic exercise. And certainly it's true that UK-EU relations more generally are not going particularly well at the moment. And so it's uh, quite unlikely that the EU would change its mind on granting equivalence. So in terms of what the UK government now plans to do, there's been quite a lot of talk and the UK government's commissioned lots of papers and uh, lots of consultations on its plans for the financial services divergence. Um, it, it's quite nerdy, so I'm not going to get into all the detail of that. But I think it's fair to say that the general gist has been that the UK wants to be more agile. It wants financial services regulation to be better tailored to the UK. It's, it's worried that the EU regulation it's acquired from the EU isn't really suitable for the UK market. And it wants to promote innovation and cut red tape. I think for the UK, the overall intention has to be to make sure that as far as possible, it can compensate for the loss of um, services that it's no longer going to be providing to EU clients you know, by finding new markets, for example, um, in Switzerland or Singapore um, or various other markets. But I think it's worth just making a couple of general points about the degree of divergence we can expect and how in some cases it's probably not going to be as dramatic as the UK government wants to present it to be in order to show that Brexit is a good idea. I think the first point I'd make is that the UK was quite influential when it was shaping the EU financial services laws. Obviously, the UK was uh, by far the biggest financial services provider in the EU. And so a lot of financial regulation in the EU really does reflect UK priorities already. Um, a good example of that is open banking. This is um, the idea that as a consumer, you should be able to share your banking data with other third-party providers and they can show you better deals or they can make payments on your behalf, um, which is all about improving competition in banking. And the UK had that regime underway well before the EU included it as a part of its payments regulations. Um, a second point I wanna make is that the UK has sometimes gold-plated EU financial regulations in the past. And by that, I mean that they've gone further than what EU financial regulation actually required. And examples of that are the way that the UK imposed ring fencing around retail banks, which is something that's now considering rolling back. And for example, it might also reduce capital requirements for some investment firms in the future. So some of that gold plating could be withdrawn while still being fairly similar to EU financial regulations. Thirdly, I think that some of what's being proposed is still consistent with EU laws or the general direction of EU travel in terms of where financial regulations are going in future. An example of what's consistent with EU laws, well, in terms of what the UK is proposing for fintech firms and trying to grow a really strong economy around neobanks and, and, and digital financial services, well, the sorts of ideas that are being proposed are around providing new visas so that firms that are growing can get um, skilled labour into the country, uh, collaboration with industry, investigating digital currencies and digital ID and tax incentives. And the EU is looking at many of those same sorts of ideas and, you know, they don't directly go to the heart of, of financial services regulation at all. And then, of course, the EU is looking at some of the same areas in terms of future reform. So the UK has recognised that the sort of rules that are being imposed by EU laws on in relation to, to insurance services are not working particularly well. And I expect that both the EU and the UK will look at reforming those in the future. Um, fourth, I'd just say that some of the changes that are being proposed are actually quite minor and quite technical and operational. That's particularly true in relation to payment services. 
So, for example, some of the things the UK has been doing since Brexit are increasing the limit for contactless card payments, making some changes to make sure that you can get cash back, which is, you know, when you take cash out at a retailer without having to make a purchase. And those are really about adding a bit more flexibility to the EU regimes, but not really fundamentally changing them. I think that's also true for a lot of the information requirements for firms that are listing on exchanges, which are also going to be reduced. And finally, the point I'd make is that the UK's independent regulators are going to become a lot more powerful in the future. Um, this is largely because a lot of the detail of the EU regulation is going to fall to them. Most prominently, that would be the FCA in the UK. I mean, as they're independent regulators, I don't think the UK government should assume that post-Brexit changes that those regulators make are always going to comply with the government's desires or even that they'll always reduce regulation. Um, we've seen some of that already. So, for example, the UK FCA is looking at making stricter rules to make open banking work even better. And really, that is um, a tightening of regulations for existing banks rather than, rather than easing them up. So look, there will certainly be more substantive changes in the future, and the UK will be doing what it can to show off those changes and to show that you know, they're making it much easier for financial services businesses to, uh, to do business in the UK and um, indeed to use the UK as a base to provide services around the world. But I, I do think it's worth keeping in mind that the UK will be kind of selling the value of those changes, even though some of them might not be as substantive as you'd otherwise expect. Thanks, Zach. So would it be fair to say that although we can expect to see more divergence between EU and UK financial services and payments regulations, these changes may not be as drastic as the UK government would have us believe? Yeah, look, there will definitely be changes and changes that are directly inconsistent with what the EU is doing, and they will definitely grow over time. But what isn't being proposed is kind of ripping up the EU law book and starting from scratch. Well, thank you. That's that's great. I think that's a wrap. It's been it's been brilliant having you three explain more on these topics. This has been the first Ask CER podcast, and we hope that you enjoyed it. Just to say, please don't feel disheartened if we haven't answered your question here. We got a whole spectrum of interesting ones come in, and we will answer some on the next episode in November. For instance, the climate related ones, and we'll try to get to the others in due course. You can. Ask your question by emailing mailing at cer.eu or you can tweet us. Our DMs are open, as they say. Uh, Feel free to rate our podcast wherever you listen to them. We welcome feedback, preferably good feedback. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Camino, Zach and Charles. Thanks, Rosie. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.